August 30th, 2018 was a day that Nikki Allen should have been celebrating her 33rd birthday with her family, her friends, or maybe even a life partner. Instead, she lay beneath a gravestone, surrounded by her childhood toys, with her family still questioning the circumstances that put her there 26 years ago. This is The Curious Case of Nikki Allen. Hi YouTube, it's Joshua Miles and welcome back to my channel. Today I'm going to be covering another curious case for you. Thank you so much for your support on my last curious crime video. If you missed it, you can find a link in the description box below. It covers the curious case of Marlene Santana, who was kidnapped at just three days old. It's truly a heartbreaking case. I'd just like to point out that this video is not being made to cause disrespect or anything like that. It's just being made to create awareness about this case by pulling information from different public sources on the internet. I've left contact information for the Northumbria Police Department and Crime Stoppers in the description box below. Just just in case anybody watching this video may have any more information that could aid in this case, maybe even help to close it. Crime Stoppers currently has a £10,000 reward for any information leading to a conviction in this case. Now with all that being said, let's delve right into the case. Nikki Allen was born in Sunderland in the northeast of England on the 30th of August 1985 to her mother Sharon Prest, who's now known as Sharon Henderson, and her father David Allen. She had a fairly normal early childhood growing up with her three sisters in the Ware Garth block of flats, which overlooked the ports in Sunderland's East End. Nikki was described as bright and sparkly by all those who knew her. She enjoyed playing with her friends and her toys just like any regular seven-year-old girl would. Nikki had a special love for cheese and onion crisps, and was always sure to have a packet of them every day with her school packed lunch. Nikki's grandparents on her mum's side lived in the same block of flats as them. Her family were very close to one another, with her grandparents often helping Sharon look after the kids. Sharon always ensured that her children were well fed, clothed and cared for. She always put her children in front of herself. On October the 7th, 1992, Nikki spent the evening playing with her cousin and her older sister, Stacy. Girls, I'm just popping out. I'll be five minutes. Okay. Sharon went to her father and stepmother's flat, which was in the same block a short walk away. It wasn't long before she was followed by Nikki and her cousin. Sharon told Nikki to go home, promising her she'd be back soon. And she just walked out the door. Sharon returned to her flat a short time later and went to check on the children. I just thought Nikki had went home, so I went down and she wasn't there. Mum, she didn't come home. Right off now, I knew there was some tomorrow. 
Within just a couple of minutes, Nikki Allen had vanished. The flat where Nikki lived was just 150 yards from her grandparents' flat where she was last seen leaving. Within an hour of her disappearance, the police had been called and were on the scene. While the east end of Sunderland was poverty-stricken and often described as having not all too much to boast about, it sure as hell had a tight-knit community. A kind of community where everyone knows each other and their day-to-day -day comings and goings. As you can imagine, the news of Nikki's disappearance spread like wildfire through the community and a search team was quickly formed of over 100 police officers and volunteers is. They were going door to door checking parks, playgrounds, alleyways, industrial units, and the waterfront where the River Ware ran through the city, a river renowned for its deceptive depth and undercurrents. The next morning, the body of Nikki Allen was found in the Keyside Exchange Building. A search team led by Nikki's aunt had spotted a pair of shoes outside the derelict and long abandoned building. Inside, her body was discovered. Nikki had been brutally beaten with a brick and stabbed over 37 times in the chest and abdomen. I was crawling in a room and told that they found a body. I think it's Nikki. Can I stop here, please? please? We lived in a close community. We were just ordinary family. She was a bubbly little girl. I've got to live with it for the rest of my life that I let Nikki walk down a flight of stairs. And I'll always live with that. The police immediately started interviewing locals to see if anybody had seen or interacted with Nikki on the night of her disappearance. It was a result of this questioning that a discrepancy in the times when Nikki left her grandparents' flat surfaced. Some people were saying 7.30, others 9.30, and others even later than that. However, the vast majority of people interviewed agreed that whatever time Nikki left the flat, she left 10 minutes before her mother did. A few witnesses report seeing Nikki as late as 10pm asking for a penny for the guy, which is a bonfire night tradition amongst British children outside the Boar's Head pub which was opposite the block of flats where Nikki lived. With one witness even claiming to have heard a little girl's screams coming from the general direction of the Keyside Exchange building. This is the BBC Crime Watch reconstruction that shows Nikki skipping past the pub with witnesses and heading towards the dock by herself. Somewhere along the way, she meets a man, probably a stranger, who witnesses claim to have seen her walking along the canal with. The man wore a white smart shirt and walked ahead while Nikki skipped behind him. The police actually found CCTV evidence that corroborates the witnesses' statements. The CCTV footage is extremely low quality, but here you can see the man walking followed by what is believed to be the last known sighting of Nikki Allen before her death. I can imagine probably our last words were shaken, Mom.
During the interviewing of the locals, the police kept hearing the same name over and over again. It was the name of a man who was branded the local weirdo, who allegedly frequented the Keyside Exchange building where Nikki's body was found. One week later, police arrested 24-year-old George Heron in relation to the murder of Nikki Allen. George Heron lived on the same estate as Nikki Allen with his sister, and despite only living there for a few weeks, locals had already become suspicious of his behaviour. He was often seen going in and out of the Keyside Exchange building. It is still unknown to the public today what George was doing when he was going in and out of this building. According to a number of witnesses, George Heron was actually seen at Boar's Head Pub, buying a particular flavour of crisps, cheese and onion. Now cheese and onion crisps were Nikki's favourite, but obviously a man buying crisps does not link him to such a gruesome crime. Perhaps, you know, George just liked cheese and onion crisps. Personally, I'd say this action on its own is nowhere near enough to stop pointing fingers. While interviewing George Heron's sister, police discovered that allegedly when he came home on the night of Nikki's murder, he uncharacteristically went straight upstairs and started washing himself and his clothes for a good half hour. Upon hearing this, the police immediately went straight to George Heron's flat and began a search, where they found clothing and trainers with blood splatters on them. They also discovered a knife, which they claimed to match the stab wounds on Nikki's body. Contrary to nearly every witness statement, George Heron categorically denies ever going to a pub that night. He actually denied knowing Nikki 120 times during interviewing. However, after three solid days of questioning, George Heron confessed to the murder of Nikki Allen. He was immediately charged with the murder, and despite the case being very, very public, it took two years before it went to trial. Unfortunately, the trial is easily the most controversial and frustrating part of this case. To ensure a fair trial, this case was sent to the Leeds Crown Court to avoid prejudice. Despite the distance, scores of locals made the almost 100 mile trip from Sunderland to Leeds. The police working on this case were extremely confident that the trial would result in a successful conviction. They had several witnesses claiming to have seen a man of Heron's description in the vicinity of the victim on the night of her murder. Like I said earlier, he was seen buying cheese and onion crisps, which police believed he used to lure Nikki to her death. And we can't forget that forensics literally found blood splatters on his clothing and trainers. The police also believed that they had found the alleged murder weapon in his house. Oh, and Josh Heron had also confessed. Despite all the evidence, the judge, Mr. Justice Mitchell, immediately criticised police for the way they handled the evidence and the suspect. The judge listened to all the tapes and read all the transcripts from the interviews with Heron. He ruled seven of the 12 tapes as inadmissible, including the most important tape, which involved Heron's confession, which the prosecution deemed pivotal. The judge stated that the police misrepresented the evidence to George Heron, and most controversially, they had used oppressive methods while obtaining a confession from Heron. The first six hours of Heron's questioning had been attended by a legal secretary and not a qualified solicitor. The police in the UK are required by law to inform and allow anyone being interviewed that they are allowed to have a qualified solicitor present. Despite denying that he knew Nikki 120 times, police continued to interview Heron for three days straight and treated him as if he was the murderer. According to the judge, in those three days of intensive and oppressive interviewing, in a state of mental fatigue, George Heron confessed. The judge ruled that circumstances not tantamount to a full and willing confession. Their evidence of blood splatters and weapons matching Nikki's wounds were very circumstantial. Please keep in mind that at this time, DNA testing was not very advanced. They could not check the DNA on the blood splatters with the DNA of Nikki Allen. And as a result of that, the prosecution became very, very reliant on witness statements. But there was a further issue with the witness statements. The witnesses gave differing descriptions of the events of that night. 
different descriptions of Heron, and most crucially, they couldn't identify Heron in a police lineup. The case was tried for six weeks before Mr. Justice Mitchell ordered the jury to acquit George Heron of the murder charge. Nikki's mother collapsed, her family and friends erupted with anger in the courtroom, and apparently a few members of the jury began to weep. Many of the jurors later sent letters to Sharon, Nikki's mother, telling her that they believed George Heron was guilty. However, under the court's ruling, George Heron was found innocent and walked free that same day. He was later given a new identity by the state and moved out of the area altogether. To this day, the Northumbria Police Department maintain that the interviews were conducted properly and that the judge's statement that the interviews were oppressive was down to interpretation. I look at Nikki's pictures and try to think about my thoughts and it just leads to the night when she was murdered. The collapse of the trial completely destroyed Sharon. Rumours began circulating that Sharon was an unfit mother and was neglecting her children. That she was a good time girl that cared more about partying than parenting. Those rumours, on top of her daughter's brutal murder that had seen no justice, completely destroyed Sharon. The police had actually completely stopped contact with Sharon and provided no explanation or apology for what happened in the courtroom. Sharon slowly but surely began to rebuild her life and dedicated it to trying to find justice for her daughter, Nikki. In 1994, Sharon sued George Heron for the battery of a child resulting in her death, and she won being awarded £7,000 in damages. Heron never contested the case, and to this day, Sharon has never received a single dime. Sharon tried to move on with her life. She tried to live for her other children. She eventually remarried, but the grief consumed her. Eventually, her marriage broke down and her relationships became strained. There's only been a few leads in the case since the trial. Most notably, in 2014, a 47-year-old man named Stephen Greveson was arrested in relation to the case, also known as the Sunderland Strangler who at the time was serving three life sentences for the murders of three teenage boys between 1993 and 1994. The news of his arrest was met with pure joy from Nikki's family. Sharon had become so overwhelmed with the news that she collapsed and actually suffered a minor stroke. Unfortunately, the joy and celebration was short-lived. The police released Griefson back into the prison population on bail and the line of inquiry was eventually dropped. In April 2018, a man was arrested in relation to the case after police said they had found advanced techniques to recover DNA from pre-existing samples. The suspect remains unnamed and they actually released him under investigation with inquiries still ongoing. Sharon's two and a half decade campaign for Nikki's justice continues. Thank you so much for watching this episode in my Curious Case True Crime series. Again, if you have any information on this case, please use the contact information in the description box below. Let me know in the comments what you think of this case. What do you think happened to Nikki? Was George Heron guilty? Give this video a thumbs up if you found it interesting, and don't forget to subscribe if you want to see more videos like this in the future. My current upload schedule is a new Curious Case episode every Sunday at 8pm UK time, 2pm Central and Midday Pacific. If you have any case suggestions, feel free to leave them down below. See you in the next case. Thanks. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.